Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Uh, good morning, welcome. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. We are preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so this morning we will be unpacking Matthew 5, 33 through 37. If you have your Bibles, please open them there. If you're unfamiliar with navigating the Bible, just so you know, there's no shame in looking in the table of contents in the front of the Bible. Uh, it'll guide you to the Gospel of Matthew, which is probably about two-thirds of the way into your Bible. When you get to that page, you will notice that there's a smattering of big numbers and then a lot of smaller numbers. The big numbers are chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are verse numbers. We are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. And while you're navigating there, uh, I just wanted to give a little bit of background as to where we are in this study, knowing that every week we have some visitors. Sometimes people are gone for a little while and they come back, so just to catch you up, uh, we believe, as we've already stated, that the mission of every true church is to quote Matthew 28, 19, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I, that's Jesus, have commanded you. Behold, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you think about that mission, we can understand this in essentially three, kind of a threefold execution based off of the verbs in those couple of verses. So that we have to baptize, to teach, and to go. And if we were to put this in like modern, catchy evangelical parlance where we have to use alliteration and three letters or three words, then we would have, uh, we believe that churches exist to make disciples, which baptism is the symbol that we have formally entered into a discipling relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe the church exists to mature disciples, that is teaching them all that Jesus commanded us in the scriptures. And we believe that the church exists to multiply disciples, to go into whatever spheres of life Christ and God in his sovereignty have placed us so that we may take the gospel to those around us. Now, thinking about that second part, the maturing disciples, uh, Pastor Jim, as he thought about what it would look like in this season to mature the disciples that the Holy Spirit has crafted into the body we call Journey Church in Tucson, he realized through prayer and reflection that what we need, what many churches need, is to double down to send our roots deep into the soil of discipleship to learn from Jesus what it means to follow him. How to be a faithful follower of Jesus in a dark and twisted generation, as Paul would say in Philippians 2. There are few texts more explicit or more rich for such a task as the Sermon on the Mount. So we have set out about uh, 15 weeks ago, we embarked on a 30-week series through the Sermon on the Mount to get into the nitty-gritty of what it would mean to follow Jesus today. And in the Sermon on the Mount, I think by my count, there's four different movements that take place in the Sermon on the Mount. So four different, like, a, like an orchestral symphony, four different ways in which the, uh, or themes which the music follows. The first one we called the Beatitudes, and that's the traditional name given it. It's from a Latin word which roughly translates into the happy life or the flourishing life or the word that we commonly associate with it, the blessed life. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus takes 
what we would consider the core things that reside in our heart, our deepest wants and desires. And he says the only true way to get those is actually counterintuitive. That we, rather than being rich, should strive to be poor in spirit, confessing our sin. That we, rather than uh, emphasizing the things of the world that make people great, we would become small, and we would show mercy, and we would seek purity. And then he moves on to the second movement in the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of an answer to a question. Jesus starts teaching, and these Jewish people listening to him, they would have thought, they would have thought, I was taught from the very young age that the flourishing life, the blessed life, is about following the law of God, but Jesus, you haven't said anything about God's law. And so Jesus, hearing in their minds the critique and the feedback, pivots and moves into a conversation about the law of God and his relationship to it. Three weeks ago, we entered into that movement, and that is where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves thinking about Jesus' relationship to the law and the relationship uh, of the law to us as well. Over the course of the past three weeks, as Pastor Jim has taken us through the first three sections, he laid out a broad six-week bottom line, and then each week has kind of come in and put a subsidiary bottom line underneath that one that has to do with our text and our topic. So our big six-week bottom line is this. A righteousness that exceeds is a righteousness that is above, beneath, and beyond the law. And I think this is fascinating because I I think there's actually a parallel here with our culture. You see, uh, let me just make something explicit that I think was implicit in many of Pastor Jim's sermons. If you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, what you'll find is Jesus constantly interacting with three groups of people. You have the religious leaders... But then you have two other groups. You have a set of religious leaders who have compromised their belief. And rather than adhering closely to God's word, they have moved into what we today would call progressive theology. Then you have a second group of people, and these people have functionally deconstructed their faith and wandered fully away and fully admitting that they are far from God. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, these people are categorized as tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. And it's interesting today because we live in a day of deconstruction. We live in a day where if you pay enough attention, you are constantly encountering stories that people are leaving the Christian faith. And interestingly enough, when Jesus addresses the law, what he does in this section is he clarifies how the law is supposed to be interpreted. Which makes me think that a lot of this has to do with people who witnessed professing believers, probably their parents or what would be in their day, their pastors, living lives that were ostensibly holy but did not actually adhere to the word of God. Uh, Before I was a pastor, I was a high school teacher and I did a lot of college ministry and throughout that time, I constantly encountered people who had grown up in the church And they had seen firsthand that people in the church were regularly finding loopholes and catch-22s in order to get out of needing to do what God's Word said to do. They played fast and loose with their personal lives in accordance with the teachings of Scripture. 
the manner of their lives had met some standard of good via technicalities and play acting. And I think these young people that I interacted with to varying levels of justification walked away from the Christian faith because they wanted something more than technicalities and play acting. You know, when I was doing college ministry and working with high school students, the constant thing I heard was that people wanted something authentic. They didn't want something shallow and superficial. They wanted something real and something weighty and something that when push came to shove actually mattered. And yet they looked around and they regularly saw people looking at the Word of God and then finding some workaround in order to live the lives they wanted to live anyway. In their minds, Christianity, because of the actions of professing Christians, had been measured, weighed, and found wanting. And it seems to me that Jesus is walking around in a similar culture. And he's looking at people who are ostensibly holy. And he says, your workarounds and your loopholes, they don't get you out of it because there is no such thing, according to God, as technically holy. And so in this movement of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is stripping away all the pretenses that we might have in order to cover our sin and cover our shortcoming rather than taking it to God through Christ. So this week, Jesus turns his attention, as he spoke before about anger, lust, and divorce, he turns his attention to the fact that we need to go above, beneath, and beyond that which is merely technically true. Would you pray with me one more time as we jump into our text this morning? Father in heaven, you cannot lie. You are a God of truth. You sent your Son, who is the truth, during his ministry. He was clothed and filled with the Spirit of truth. May we this morning hear not my words, but the voice of your Son, through the work of the Holy Spirit, so that we might be obedient before you in all truth. Amen. All right, here is our text this morning, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord all that you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, by earth, for it is his footstool, by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair on it white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, I am aware that this morning is a family Sunday. We've already had the gospel preached to us three, or tw I'm the third one. So we've had it twice, once in the songs, once in the baptism. We've got my sermon. We've got communion coming up after and more songs. So we've got six gospels for you this morning, all the same one, just six different presentations. So just to get it through right now while we're all paying attention, Here's the bottom line. I'm going to say it two more times throughout the course of the sermon. Christians must be a people of radical truth to verify our testimony that Jesus is alive and to embody the character of our Heavenly Father. Christians must be a people of radical truth to verify our testimony that Jesus is alive and embody the character of our Heavenly Father. And if we're going to wrestle through that, we need to notice several things in this text. 
The first thing to notice is that Jesus is not here actually quoting Scripture, but rather he's summarizing about five Old Testament passages. And therefore, because Jesus isn't quoting Scripture and then contradicting it, what he's actually doing is he's not changing, but rather clarifying the standard. Think about the text we've looked at in each of the pre- previous sermons. Jesus doesn't change the standard for the, what the law lays out. Rather, he clarifies how the standard should either be applied, understood, or interpreted. Jesus is saying then to his audience that you have misinterpreted what the Old Testament is teaching about oaths. You thought it said one thing, it actually says something different. Specifically, Jesus is pointing out that it had been interpreted that the Old Testament had been interpreted to establish some sort of tiered system of truth. That what goes, uh, and what goes on, he goes on to draw on three common sayings in his day, uh, that by swearing by them, you could associate yourself with a varying level of truth. In other words, if you swore by heaven, I really mean it. If you swear by earth, I, I mean it but just not as much. If I swear by Jerusalem, I kind of mean it. And if I swear by the hairs on my head, eh, I might mean it. And in a sense, what ends up happening is people had set up what the first century equivalent to like reading the fine print. Make sure you've done your due diligence and you know the actual bargain. Because I didn't swear by God, I just swore by heaven. That's different. Now, Jesus throws out the whole system, and he says, people who follow me, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, followers of Yahweh, for you, yes means yes, and no means no. And that's it. You don't need anything else. The second thing we should recognize in this passage is that Jesus provides two criteria for verifying an oath. Now, I think that actually requires me to unpack this a little bit more in terms of an observation outside of the text. When Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, it's really important to notice the English grammar there. The sentence does not end, which is to say that the unit of thought has not ended. The reason this is important is because Jesus is not here abolishing public acts of promise. He's not saying never stand before somebody and swear something, never stand before somebody and promise something. He's actually giving us a standard by which we can assess public promises. Uh, In fact, if you look at Matthew 26, you'll find that Jesus, when he is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, refuses to speak until they put him under oath. So if you're worried about going to court anytime in the near future, I'll pray for you for that in general. But specifically, you don't have to worry about taking an oath because that's not what Jesus is condemning here. Similarly, in Galatians 1 and 1 Corinthians 1, Paul takes an oath upon himself at the beginning of his epistles. And in fact, if you pay attention to much of the Bible, the themes in the narrative are often pushed forward by this thing called a covenant, which is functionally a kind of oath, a kind of promise made between God and his people. 
So instead of abolishing oaths, what Jesus is doing is establishing ways in which we can verify or assess an oath, and particularly whether we can assess our own oaths, not necessarily somebody else's. So let's pay attention to this. Matthew 5, 34 through 36 again. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, by earth, for it is his footstool, by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair on it, white or black. So criteria one, swearing by God's stuff is swearing by God. Don't do it. You do not have the requisite authority. In the Old Testament, it is a crime to swear by God and fail to fulfill or keep your oath. In fact, it's a crime which the appropriate penalty could have been as high as death. And so what would happen is people would try and get out of something really major, a big punishment, by swearing by something next to or near or in the proximity of God. And in fact, they ended up creating this massive structure in which the closer you got to God, the more truthful you had to be, the further away from God, the more loopholes there were to get through it. So throne of God, it's not God, it's just his chair. That's not how it works. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, no, God, God tells no lies. Ergo, if you follow God, you will strive to tell no lies. It doesn't matter what you are swearing on, and it doesn't matter how close or how far away from God that object is. Swearing by God, or swearing by God's stuff, is swearing by God. Criteria two, do not swear by something you have no power over. After the first criteria, we might think, well, at least I can swear by, like, myself, right? And Jesus says, no, you can't even turn one hair on your head, white or black. And I know some of you out there are thinking, oh, but I can dye my hair. Like we all know, Scott Rash really has red hair. He's been dyeing it for years to match his robe. I'm just kidding. I don't know where Scott is in here, but I saw him earlier, so I'm allowed to make fun of him. That's not how it works. When you dye your hair, you have to do it again. Why? Because you haven't actually changed anything about your body. You've just wallpapered over it. Oh, but I can change and shape my body through diet and exercise. Yeah, until you stop, and then entropy enforces its will upon you. There's all the laughs are from all the people who know I'm right. I used to be a high school athlete. I know I was fit one time. This is, we don't have power even over ourselves. And so the two criteria are that we do not swear by God or by his stuff, and that we do not swear by that which we have no power or authority over. Now, let me give you uh, this, by the way, as a side note. I have always been fascinated by wedding ceremonies. And you can think about, actually, in a wedding ceremony, the things which you swear, right? What do you have? What in a Christian wedding ceremony do we say you have power and authority over? You make, you swear by your decisions, your actions, and the desire of your heart. You vow before God, your friends, and your family to choose your spouse. I take thee to be my lawfully wedded wife. That is a promise I made. I chose her, and in choosing her, I cut off all other options. I can keep that promise. 
You vow in a wedding ceremony to actively pursue your spouse. This is another vow I have taken. To have and to hold you from this day forward, forsaking all others, till death do us part. And in vowing to choose and in vowing to pursue, you are vowing to shape the desires of your heart through your other actions and other choices so that your love rests on your spouse and your spouse alone. You know, we live in a day and age where we talk about falling in and falling out of love. That's not how it works. Otherwise, Paul could not command you in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's in the imperative tense, which means it's a command. You have to do it or you are disobedient to the scriptures. Why? Because you can actually choose, and you do in a million different things every day, who you will love. And so we actually have the ability to make oaths about what we will do, about what we will choose, and about the desires of our hearts. We have power over them. A third thing to notice in this passage is that this passage, like the rest, is not necessarily and simply about oaths. It's actually about the content of every human heart. You see, Jesus is calling us to a radical commitment to the truth, to be people who are radically committed to the truth, and people who are radically committed to the truth do not make oaths of this sort. What sort, you ask? What sort of oaths am I not allowed to make? The oaths that Jesus is talking about come from our performative attempts to grasp at something which has real, metaphysical, binding weight in order to leverage that thing against our own deception. You see, oaths exist because people are liars. Here's the late biblical scholar John Stott. He writes, Swearing, i.e. taking an oath, is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Why do we find it necessary to introduce promises with some tremendous formula? I swear by the archangel Gabriel and all the hosts of heaven, I swear by my Bible. The only reason is we, our simple word is not likely to be trusted. So we try and induce people to believe us by adding some kind of solemn oath. Interestingly, the Essenes, a Jewish sect contemporary with Jesus, had high standards for the matter. Josephus, a historian, wrote of them, they are eminent for their fidelity and they are ministers of peace. Whatsoever they say is firmer than an oath, by swearing, uh, but swearing is avoided by them, and they esteem it worse than perjury. For they say that he who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. As A.M. Hunter puts it, oaths arise because men are often liars. The same is true of all forms of exaggeration, hyperbole, and the use of superlatives. We are not content to say we had an enjoyable time. We have to describe it as a fantastic or fabulous or even fantabulous or some other invention. But the more we resort to such expressions, the more we devalue human language and human promises. Christians should say what they mean and mean what they say. Our unadorned word should be enough. Yes or no? 
and when a monosyllable will do, why waste our breath by adding to it? You see, we make, word, we make oaths because we deep down believe in the insufficient veracity, the insufficient truth of our character. What oaths are we not supposed to make? We are not supposed to make oaths where we strive and cling to the things of God in order to justify our own deception. I think that has to prompt in us the question, why does deception exist? Why does deceit exist? If oaths exist because deceit exists, why is deceit there? There are likely several major reasons, but as I was reflecting on what we were doing this morning, and as I was reflecting on the content of Scripture, I wanted to highlight one for you. I believe oaths exist and deceit exists because Satan, our enemy, does. Listen to this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees in John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because of my word, finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Notice that, two fathers. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. I love the Pharisees. It takes them a little while to get it. They haven't figured it out yet. We haven't been born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Here's the catch. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and, he, and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies, but because... But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. In that exchange, Jesus juxtaposes truth and deceit. One father with another father. One father is God, who the scriptures tell us can tell no lies. 
God's character does not change. So when he speaks, he speaks from his character, and therefore he has to tell the truth, because his character cannot change. The fancy theological term for this is immutability, which I say simply to prove that I went to seminary. Immutability means that God cannot change. And if he cannot change, then when he speaks, he speaks truly. The other father, however, is Satan, the rebellious angel cast out of heaven, who taught us to lie by deceiving our first parents, Adam and Eve. I mean, have you ever noticed in Genesis 3 the subtle but technically true thing that Satan says? He comes into the garden, he meets Adam and Eve, and he says, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And by the way, that's technically true. If you pay attention, they become in one fashion like God. But it's only technically true because it's really false. Because when they became like God in one way, they exchanged it for their holiness, which was the fundamental way they were like God. They had been crafted in his image. They were already like God from their inception. God breathed into them life. They were like God, and yet Satan deceived them that they were not really like God just yet. And so Satan told a half-truth, a technical truth, And in making the exchange and believing that technical truth, Adam and Eve ate a lie. They acquired a capacity to be like God that they did not previously have, but they lost fundamentally a manner in which they were much more like God. This exchange has wrought every sin throughout human history. And so here's our bottom line again. Christians must be people of radical truth to verify the testimony that Jesus is alive and embody the character of our Heavenly Father. He told no lies. He used no half-truths. He got by with no technicalities. Neither should we. When we subvert the truth with technicalities, we are not embodying the character of our Father in Heaven, but rather our demonic Father, a much more serpentine one. So we have to ask ourselves, where is the source of our words? Where do they come from? But what about the verification of our testimony? What about, through our words, showing that Jesus truly is alive? I mentioned in the introduction the pain and apostasy that I have seen from young people who walked away because what they saw in their parents and in their pastors and in many other professing Christians was mere play-acting. Now, there's any number of reasons that a believer's child might walk away from the faith. So if you are here, and your son or daughter is struggling in the wilderness of faith, trying to figure out whether to, refer, whether to return to their own metaphorical Egypt of sin, or whether to advance following God into the promised land, know that I pray for you, and I do not mean this to be condemning. Rather, what I mean is simply to offer a firsthand experience I have had, sort of an an investigative report uh, of my days working with young people who had walked away from their faith. I have been in countless rooms and counseling sessions with high school students and college students. Yes, angsty, and yes, upset about certain things, so believe you me, I take this with a large grain of salt, but... With cleaned up language a little bit, here is essentially what I have heard again and again. Why should I go to youth group? My parents are rarely at church. 
Why should I listen to the pastor? My father checks his fantasy football lineup during the sermon. Why should I limit my social media intake? My mom is mainlining fake news off Facebook. Why should I watch my language? My dad has a bumper sticker that says, let's go, Brandon. I had to look that one up when the student told it to me. Uh, apparently, it's a veiled reference at the F word in our current president. Why should I pray? My parents have never taken the time to pray with me before bed, at dinner, nor have I ever seen them pray together. Why should I read my Bible? I've never seen my father's open. Why should I care about Christian friends? My parents leave community groups and church as soon as they can to make sure they don't miss kickoff. Why should I? Why should I? Why should I? I have sat in that room again and again. Here's what I want you to hear. If you are a parent or a mature believer, you need to understand if you believe your faith is anything more than the moralistic therapeutic deism that Jim introduced us to in the Second Peter series, if you are a parent or a mature believer and you believe your faith is more than just performative play acting so that your kids grow up with basically secular humanists with some whitewash of Christian religion, you need to understand that you are a living, breathing, moving, praying, speaking apologetic that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Far too many people have put that on others. I know I get paid to be your pastor, but I cannot professionally disciple your kids. That fundamentally is going to come down to parents, to grandparents. I will do all I can to help and to stand at your side. But I have very little authority in that world. When day in and day out, they're watching. And by the way, I say that with two little ones over there who I know are watching my every move, which is why my son stands with his hands in his pocket like I do, and my other one says, curious on occasion, because that's what I say. I know like sponges, they absorb everything that I do. And so I am right there with you. But we need to be aware that our very lives and the words we speak are an apologetic. When our word falls short, there is a subtle hint that those baptisms weren't true, that our taking of the Lord's Supper was just play-acting. Parents, if I can give you one piece of advice that my wife and I have tried to embody in our house in the last six years since my oldest came into the world, repent when you do something wrong. And not just to God, but in front of your kids. The through line of the Christian faith will always be coming back to the cross and seeking forgiveness for the sins we have committed. In terms of words, Matthew 12, 33 through 37 says this, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. For by your words you will be justified, or by your words you will be condemned. That is a standard which I only meet because I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because my words have always been truthful, for they have not. Not because they have been meaningful, for I have uttered many careless things. Not because they have even always been kind, because I have been mean at times. Through my words I have cut deep. But brothers and sisters, Christians must be people of radical truth to verify the testimony that Jesus is alive. 
and to embody the character of our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? God, we need your help to be people of truth. Christ, we need your blood to be forgiven of our false words and our deceptive speech. Holy Spirit, we need your filling to live for truth from now on. We ask these things in the name of our Savior and God, Father, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.